listening to Vet Candy. Hi, this is Dr. Jessica Turner, and you're listening to Living Well with Dr. Jessica. You're one stop for all things wellness, not just what to eat or how to move, but everything in between. I know I always say I'm excited because I truly am, but I'm really excited about today's guest because I think it's going to be one of those shows that are just going to leave you feeling encouraged and empowered because of her story. I can't wait to just dig in and welcome Dr. Angie Hoffman. She is also known as San Diego DVM. You'll understand why throughout our, our show. But the reason I'm so thrilled to have her on is because her story starts with a really difficult decision um, that she made at the age of 42 to decide to go to vet school. And I feel like that alone is like enough of a, a deal. You know, like that's, that's a big deal. But she was also a single mom to four when she made this decision. And so... I could picture how difficult that must have been. And I remember a couple of women and one man, I I think so, that kind of made a similar decision. And y'all kind of stick out, you know, like (laughs) you kind of can't help because you're, you're a minority because of the age difference. But despite that, she survived and now is an owner of a thriving practice uh, where she treats a variety of small animals. She's rocking it, y'all. And so I'm so excited to have you on and just to hear more about your story and what that's looked like and how it's gotten you to where you are today. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Dr. Jessica. I feel like I I talk about myself all the time. I don't think it's that interesting, but <laughs> it's 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 funny to hear people go, wow. I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's a thing. I just did it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it really is. I do think there's a lot of weight behind the decision you made because going to veterinary school at any age is, it's a big decision. It's a big commitment. Um, It's very daunting. There's a lot of hard work that goes into just getting in, in the first place. But I think there's something to be said about people that are brave enough to kind of make that big of a life decision when other people may say, but what's the point? What I mean, like some people in their mind, it's like, those are the decisions you make when you're in your early twenties. And if you don't make them in that timeline, then like you've kind of missed the boat, which is ridiculous. But (laughs) I think that's why there's such a, I don't know, an excitement around your story. And then you throw in the fact that you also had kids, you know, while you were juggling that decision. It is a weird little story. And I think it's interesting what you said about people who, you know, that's a thing where you just go, well, you figure out what you're going to do when you're 20 and then you just go do it for life. And that's, it's really weird when you think about it. Like, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know a thing when I was that age. Like nobody, who who knows what they're going to do with life. That's, that's kind of crazy that we try to make these decisions in and fit in that shoebox. And, and I it think is. what we're seeing now with, you know, the great resignation and all this is people finally going, oh, I don't have to do that thing that one day I decided was a good idea and mm-hmm. a guidance counselor told me to do it and, and all of that. So I've been really excited to sort of see this disruption and upheaval. And I think it it really speaks to what we need going forward because it's not 1955 anymore. And uh, there's a lot more opportunities out there for us. And we, we live a lot longer and we know that, you know, the different opportunities are going to are going to come along. So for me, it was one of those things where I always kind of thought I'd want to be a vet. I would stay out in the in the doghouse at my parent, my grandparents house out in the country and, you know, literally sit in the doghouse with the dog and would have been a vet in a second. But 
grew up in a pretty, it was a small town in Oklahoma that was a big oil company town and very competitive. Like the person next to you might've been in Singapore the year before, because that was where, you know, mom or dad was, was uh, stationed with the company or they were in London or they were in Norway. So we had this weird little bubble in this tiny town in Oklahoma um, that was actually full of people that were really well-traveled and, you know, very smart and, and high achievers and all that. So we had some crazy amount of national merit finalists in our class and being surrounded with all that, my narrative was, oh, well, I'm not super smart at math and science and vet school's hard to get into. So I I can't, I can't do that. Like I was watching these people be such yeah. high achievers and thinking, oh, well, I just, I just can't do that. So I talked myself out of it, loved English, went to college, got an English degree and was like, well, now what do I do? Thought maybe I'd go to law school, ended up going and getting another a journalism degree, which I only needed a few semesters for. And then when we moved from the Midwest to San Diego, I was pregnant like right away with my first kid. And thought, well, I still want to do something, but you know, what am I going to do that doesn't cost me a lot in daycare? And I ended up being on the board of a nonprofit dog and cat rescue and as their communications director. So I would write press releases and things like that. Well, when you're doing that, then you're exposed to a lot of other things. And I ended up taking a job as an adoption counselor in one of the shelters. And when you're the adoption (laughs) counselor in the shelter... There's, you know, litters of kittens that come in that can't stay in the shelter because they'll get sick. And there's other, you know, things that need fostering and a dog with a puppy with a broken leg that needs a little crate rest for a few weeks. So then I ended up at a veterinarian's office a lot. And when you're in your veterinarian's office enough and they're busy enough, like, do you want a job? (laughs) So I sort of wormed my way back into the veterinary community. So I was at one clinic for a while and she asked me to work and I said, yes, I was held up at gunpoint when I was eight (gasps) months pregnant with my my second kid. I'm like, who robs a vet clinic? You come on. There's a perfectly good 7-Eleven next door. Nothing happened. It was fine. But <laughs> that vet said, well, you're not supposed to give them any money. And I was like, I'm sorry. I was going to do whatever I could do. So she was upset that I gave him the cash drawer. So I, I didn't stay at that job. Um, and then I was still volunteering and fostering. Ended up at another vet clinic. Same thing happened. Hey, do you want to, like, maybe just Saturdays. Just work Saturdays. And that was the place where I ended up for many years. I ended up getting my RVT and thought that was great moved away. A couple of years later, I'm getting divorced. My house is being foreclosed on. I called them and said, do you guys need any help? The practice manager answered the phone that day and she was like, yes, thank you. I had two people that didn't show up. When can you be here? Oh my goodness. So that was <laughs> 2009. I kind of slid back in there and it was nice. It was like being home. It was a, a husband and wife that team. I always really enjoyed being there and it was a nice place to go and land after that. And in doing that, I ended up working with um, a guy who used to tech with me who had gone to vet school at Ross University in St. Kitts. And I talked to him a lot. And I remember thinking, wow, they did a really good job with him because this guy was kind of kind of a, an idiot before he left. And he would tell you the same thing. He was just hadn't found himself yet. He almost flunked out his first semester. And then he's like, I figured out I really need to get it together. Uh, and he did. And he's a really good vet. And it wasn't something I had thought about. It just popped into my head one day. And I was like, oh, that's, that's silly. No, no, no. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, yeah, if he certainly if he can do it, I can do it. And do I want to do it? And I realized I, I really did that I wanted to have more agency over my future. I knew that I, I really enjoyed being an RVT. I was really good at it. And I also knew that it wasn't going to pay the bills, you know, for my kids and for me to live in Southern California. So do I get a specialty in RVT? You know, do I do that? I really like anesthesia. And I thought about that. And then I thought, you know, why not just go whole hog? Like, what's the worst that can happen? I'll be in debt. Sure, probably. But where do I want to be in 10, 20, 30 years? We have a mommy tax in this country. We just do. I stayed at home and I raised four kids. And 
didn't have a lot to show for it. So I, I just heard recently LinkedIn is allowing you to put on your um, on your resume there, stay at home mom to explain your gaps in the resume. I'm like, oh, really? It's 2022. Good, good job, everybody. And I mean, my organizational skills and everything were just on point. You know, you don't have four kids and it's it's like running a major invasion every day. You're just like, okay, you're gonna go here, you're gonna go there. I remember my ex-husband one time, he was like, what are you doing today? Just like totally off the cuff. And I, you know, rattled off like just, just a few, like to get me to noon or something. He was, he just looked at me. He was like, oh my God, I'm exhausted just hearing that. I'm like, yeah, well, welcome. So yeah, it, it definitely, <laughs> there was a point where you're like, well, if I can do that, you know, I can probably do just about anything. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. As a veterinarian, making time for your mental health may seem impossible right now. That's why we've partnered with VetCandy to bring awareness to Zant. With Zant, you can choose from 25 focus areas, from burnout to addiction to everyday struggles, for $0 to access and free first sessions. Thinking there's a catch? No catch. Just actually affordable mental health care. Download Zant in the iOS app store today. Whenever you first started sharing your story, when you were still in, in high school and kind of like being so in tune to, to your surroundings with the other students and that negative self-talk starting that early on, and then it kind of rearing its head again throughout that process, you know, making you question, well, can I really do that? Um, I think it's such a common thing that we deal with and why so many people may remain stuck in in a situation where they're they know they're not truly happy and they're not, you know, doing what they should be doing in the sense of what they enjoy and what they're good at. But we allow that script in our head from whatever external, you know, sources um, to just keep replaying. And so I love that you had someone come into your journey and kind of be that living proof for you that allowed you to kind of change that narrative that you were playing in your head for so long. Yeah, I think that was really, really important. And even if I didn't recognize it, there's so many subconscious things we have swirling around that I think we're just not aware of. And then they kind of pop up to the surface. And I'm just glad that, I don't know, I'm the crazy kind of person that's receptive to that kind of stuff. When, it, you know, an idea pops up, it's it's nice to just go, well, let's just turn that over for a minute. Let's look, let's look and see what that is before we just immediately swat it away. And, um, you know, it's not to say people didn't think I was crazy. I I got a lot of funny looks and all that. And that's, you know. I know our listeners are wanting to know how old were your kids when you made this decision? Yeah. So that was, let's see, when did the whole economic crap storm take place? It was about 2009. So at that time, I have four kids. They're six years apart. So my youngest would have been eight. And then by the time I left, you know, I went, I started school in 2011. So I was doing prereqs. I was working full time. I was taking care of them. I was doing my, my math and science courses. So it was, it was a really, really busy time. I'm very, very lucky that I had my mom to help me out with them to drive in places and do things and, and all of that. But yeah, they were um, elementary school through high school during the the pre journey. And then when I was there, I had one go off to college and yeah. What were their reactions? I'm so curious. I could just see, you know, you're doing what? I think they were a good age. They were young enough 
and old enough, if that makes sense to kind of understand it and grasp it. It wasn't like, I think if they were toddlers, you know, that would have been really, I just don't have that sense of permanence and what does this mean? And um, that things can be sort of temporary in time. And my oldest wrote one of her college essays. I just factored in big about that, just for mentioning that, hey, this is my mom, this is what she's doing. And I've always known that I can do whatever, whatever it is that I set my mind to because of the things I've seen her do. Like they saw me working on my organic chemistry homework, you know, they were sitting at the table doing their homework and <laughs> y'all doing it all together. Eighth, ninth, 10th grade, you know, they're up late with me until midnight doing, doing my OCHEM. And so, I mean, they, they saw it, they saw the struggle that it wasn't just a, I'm going to go do this. And then it happened. Like there were a whole lot of steps in between and a whole lot of hard work. That's what really sustained me those nights at three in the morning when I was like, what am I even doing? I was just thinking that, that they were probably such a huge motivator throughout the process because it, you had that constant reminder of this is so much more than me just doing what I want to do, kind of, you know, making things right that maybe I should have did earlier. But you were also giving them that example of it not being too late. And, you know, this is what hard work looks like and the payoff that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. They're all in their twenties now, which pains me to say that it's true. They just keep dragging me, dragging me with them. Um, they're, they're 20 to, through 27 now. And, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard right now. I think it's always hard to kind of be that age and becoming of age and getting out of college or whatever studies you've been done and getting a job and learning how to adult, you know, they'll occasionally say, well, oh, my friends are doing this, or I should, I should be at this place, or, you know, I should be getting this internship or owning a house or being married or whatever. And I just go, hi, <laughs> look at me, you know, poster child for you do not have to have it all figured out when you're 25. Um, you'll, you'll get there. It's so true. When you mentioned earlier, you know, it's kind of silly when we think about it, like we're expected to know what we're meant to do for the rest of our lives at such an early age. And I do think so much of it is influenced by well-meaning people such as guidance counselors and things of that nature. But things are so rapidly changing. Again, as you mentioned, that it's just crazy to think that we would make a decision at the age of 20. And with the changes over the time and the changes within ourselves, that we have to be stuck to that decision if we see that it's actually not, you know, where we want to remain. I feel like it's very common in our field that you do hear people talking about, oh, I knew from you know, since I was five that I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> and you even talked about how you kind of had those seeds planted at such an early age. And again, kind of let yourself be led a different way just because you, you weren't convinced that you'd be able to do what was needed. And I do think we have a higher percentage of people that are so clear in this is what they're supposed to be doing. But part of what I love about conversations that happen on this show is that I think a lot of us are still so stuck on, okay, so I'm a veterinarian and so my options are practice or teaching. But there's so many different avenues within our field that um, people can explore that even if you may be listening and you're a veterinarian and you still love our profession and you can't imagine doing anything else, but you just don't feel like you're right where you're supposed to be, I hope this encourages you to kind of open your view of what's out there still within our profession. Yeah, it's so exciting. There's so many ways to be a veterinarian. And I think that's just one of the coolest things about what we do is that how many avenues are just getting that degree doesn't mean, okay, you're going to go work in a small animal practice, or you're going to work in a large animal. Like, God, there's so much out there right now. And especially in this day and age, I've, I've been talking to a friend of mine about 
coming on, I'm, I'm ready. I've owned this practice for about two and a half years now and built it up so that I'm going to need another person. I can't do everything all the time as it turns out. And, you know, I've got a friend who's a little bit burned out and this person is great at it. Like is such a good medicine person and communicating with people, but maybe the clinical practice isn't, isn't where, you know, she wants to be right now. But I have this vision of having, you know, this mentorship kind of program in, in multiple practices that I own. And, you know, maybe that's a place where, where she could fit in. You know, she loves teaching texts, like she's great at cytology and you don't have to just be churning, churning people through rooms and making money for your practice. There's so many other ways that you can, can impact people and and still be a veterinarian. I mean, that's just a little tiny example. I'm sure you, you talk to people all the time who, who do that all different ways. I love that example. And I think it brings up a point of the importance of being connected with one another as a profession, because it's going to be people such as yourself through personal experience or, or whatever it may be that see, you know, what can change to be a part of the solution within our profession and are courageous enough to be a part of that change. And so when you are actively looking to connect with others that are kind of looking in that forward approach, it opens doors for opportunities like you were just describing, where people may be thinking outside of the box and they need a specific individual to fill that role. And the more people you know, and the more you're vocal about what you hope to see, the more likely you're going to be able to play a role in that, which I think is really awesome. (laughs) I think that's the most, it's, I've, I've heard this before. I certainly didn't come up with it, but the most dangerous phrase is, well, we've always done it that way. That's this terrifying to me. And I, I think we're in this real reawakening of vet med. And, and I hope, I hope that the rumblings that we're here and the disruption isn't just lip service. You know, I hope there's enough people that come along and say, no, we've got to change this. We've got to get better pay. We've got to leverage our people better. And all of those are fine, but there's even more. Like there's so many boxes to think outside of <laughs> that we can do and make things better for, for the coming generations. There really is. And I will say that since starting this show, that's been the biggest encouragement for myself. There are a lot of people out there that are making change happen. And I'm sure we're just barely brushing the surface with who we have on. But it's really easy to kind of get that tunnel vision and think that things are never going to change because of, you know, you may be in a in a, cl- a practice that is more old school. I know I'm in a town, a small town where there's a clinic that the guy's pretty much retired, but he, he just hasn't said that, you know, but, uh, and it's not just him and my sister-in-law works there too. And, you know, she's part of the, the change that's happening, but it's, it's been a really slow process because it's, it's been that way for so long because that practice has been there forever. And it's kind of set like the standard for everyone else, because that's what our town is so used to. And so, I think it's easy when you're in those situations, you may be in more rural locations where you're just like, there's, we're never going to get to where we need to get. But I want y'all to know that there are people out there that are, are doing things different and that you could play a part of that as well. I'm going to take a quick break because I want to dive into um, your experience when you first got out of school and how that kind of set the stage for where you're at now and, and the things that you care about most. So We'll be right back. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Put the needle on the record. 
Vet Candy Life is a talk show hosted by well-being gurus, Dr. Quincy Hawley and Renee Michelle. Each episode features expert tips, lifestyle advice, and real-life experiences from the most interesting people in the world. Check it out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Hi, welcome back. You were listening to Living Well with Dr. Jessica, and I'm here with Dr. Angie. And we are just digging into her incredible story of how she went back to vet school as a single mom um, to four at the age of 42. Right now, I would love for you to just kind of touch on, so you you went to vet school, you survived that, which was a challenge in itself. <laughs> but when you got out, what was that experience like and how did it play a role in Uh, where you are today. I got out and I ended up at the the same clinic where I had worked um, as a technician, as an RVT. And that was kind of always my goal. I really, I I grew up there. I loved that place. My kids grew up there. They had worked there. And I thought, I'm going to go back to work there. And the owner and I had talked about me buying in and buying more clinics. And that was always what I knew I wanted to do as a veterinarian. I knew I didn't want to be an associate forever. I knew that the path to greater financial independence was going to be through ownership. And I just thought it sounded, it's fun. Like I like to put all those pieces of the puzzle together. It is definitely not the path for everybody. Um, but I was very clear on that. So I went back there and I got my feet wet, started doing the medicine stuff, which is terrifying. You know, when you first get out and then for the first few years, you're like, am I doing this right? Um, and in between was working on, Hey, are we going to, are we going to do this deal and buy things? And you know, it just, it didn't turn out to be the thing. And I I really fought against it for a long time because I had in my mind, this was the track and this was going to be the thing. And the owner was showing me all the time that she wasn't really interested. She wouldn't say it, but, and I don't think she was able to, I think in her mind, she was like, yeah, we'll do it. But now's not the time. Or I would ask to see financials and I don't know why you would need to do that. And you know, there were, there were barriers kind of being thrown up and they were sort of soft barriers, but they were there nonetheless. And I, it took me a long time and some coaching conversations with others and some come to Jesus talks with my husband who would go, let me hear, let me tell you what I'm hearing you say. And I finally realized, oh, this isn't going to happen. I looked around once I kind of got over that, I saw with a more critical eye what had been happening in the practice and the toxicity that was happening there and the changes that I would try to make. And they were small because I didn't have a leadership position, you know, as an associate, but I would come with changes I wanted to make and things that I thought were going to make life better there for the people and make things more efficient and make us more money. And all of that got shut down. So it, it took a good, it was about a good year before I really was like, I got to get out of here this is not working. And so I did, as often happens with toxic places, I I gave lots and lots of notice and I did not work out that notice because, you know, when somebody starts screaming at you on the treatment floor, it's time to go. It didn't end great. And that was a real bummer because I look back at, you know, I've known this person for 20 years and, you know, really invested a lot in this, but it's just like going back to that school at 42. It's like, okay, well that chapter closed. It's time to go on to the new one. Let's just go, you know, balls to the wall because that's the only way I know how to do things. So I started looking for other practices. The first one I went to look at, I remember thinking, it's here and it's this is the good, this is the bad. And I'm like, well, it won't be, just go see it because it won't be the one anyway. Well, it is the one I bought. As you know, life just happens, like say yes to more stuff because you just never know what the universe is going to plop down in front of you. So yeah, I, I ended up buying it. That was a, it was a rough go. This person, bless him, was retired on the job, but didn't know it yet, wasn't really ready to give up. And and I worked with an attorney, thank goodness. And he said, I do $50 million deals that are not 
anywhere near this complicated. Like this guy is just making life so hard for you. And are you going to be able to make money here? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And so again, you know, nothing, nothing was easy about the path. And I got in, I had one employee who stayed and my girls came and helped me. And we, you know, just rolled our sleeves up and got in there and did it. And as hard as things have been, I am always reminded of those kind of the negative example that I saw at my last place. And so even when I'm grumpy or I'm fussy about, you know, my charts aren't getting written up or things aren't happening right the way I want them to, to really be cognizant that my team doesn't need to know all of that. <laughs> my team just wants to come to work and be well taken care of. And so I put that aside a lot and really, and it's amazing how that works that once I pour into somebody else, I'm a lot less grumpy and I forget about kind of that other stuff and it'll, it'll wait. So that's been really important for me to, there was a little bit of a fake it till you make it <laughs> aspect and just having a good positive attitude. And it's, it's good. I think we have a really, really good culture. We hire slow, fire fast, and it's never fun to fire anybody, but if they're not fitting with your culture, again, I've seen people stick around for eight, nine, 10 years, and they're just poisoning the well of other really good employees that could have a good time there. So it's definitely a learning curve. I still really love it. And, um, and I hope that we are making a nice change for people. You know, when you think about you're responsible for making a profit in your business so that your business can stay afloat, so that you can employ these people so that they can pay their rent and do all that. It's a lot, but having that guiding process of, yes, we need to make money and we need to also invest in our people. To me, that really keeps the train on the track and uh, guides guides a lot of what we do. And I, I think that, that our team's really happy and I, I'm looking to expand it. But again, it's, you got to find the right people. And I'm not saying it's not like in, I, I hear a lot of people, it's like, oh, it's so hard to find people, kind of, but you know, we're also not going to hire just a warm body. So I love that saying that you um, said about hiring slow, but firing fast, because I do think it's so important to kind of have a set of, you know, values that you, you and your clinic kind of live by and, and using that as a, a filter whenever you are, you know, trying to find people to be a fit, because just that little bit of intentionality can save you so much headache, you know, down the line. I didn't realize how much our stories are similar. I, too, when I graduated from vet school, returned to the clinic that I worked at prior or shadowed at. And I mean, it was our family vet for forever. Um, he played a huge role in me getting in the school. And like you mentioned, I had this like mindset of this is going to be great. Like, I know these people. I've I've grown up in this town. Like, everything is just going to be wonderful. <laughs> it was such a toxic environment as well. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. And isn't that funny? Like, do you think it was that way before you went and you just didn't 
kind of recognize what that meant? Or do you think it changed over the years? I think so. When I look back, there were warning signs and and I saw them, but I told myself it'd be different because of the relationship we had beforehand. But there were several associates that had come and gone and none of it was pretty, (laughs) but they were outsiders, you know? And so like, I always thought that that was going to be the difference maker, but it got to the point where I was so miserable that my husband and my parents were concerned with my well-being and pretty much begging me not to renew my contract. And um, so I left with no plan B as well. And it was like, what am I supposed to do now? (laughs) But luckily I was able to get a position at a clinic that I also worked at while I was in vet school in a nearby town. And it was night and day experience. So isn't that so funny? And you don't know how bad things were. You, You normalize it. And then you get out and you go, oh my gosh, that was terrible. It's so true. It made me so appreciative of the second place and just the staff, just everything, honestly, everything from my boss to my coworkers, everything. You know, my my input was important, even though I did not have a share of ownership or anything. Like he wanted to change and advance with the times and practice the best medicine we could. And there's people out there that may be the older generation, you know, and it's so easy to put like older men, (laughs) you know, veterinarians in that box of like being the ones that are so resistant to change. Both of those scenarios, it was that kind of setup. But I got to see the extreme between the two of one that was so stuck in his ways and didn't see that he was actually part of the problem. But another one that was so open to what was happening within our field and was excited about the influx in women in respected family yeah. And I think that's so important because I hear a lot of people and they're, you know, thought leaders in our industry who will make these statements about, well, this is what millennials want and boomers don't do that. I don't know. It's just, it seems to me, it's a really lazy construct to pit generations against each other um, or even male and female. Although, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think just writing somebody off because of the year they were born, either way is kind of silly. You know, you got to look at what, who that person is on the inside. Are they willing to hold space for somebody else in different perspectives? Are they willing to be self-aware and and create a good culture? And, And that can, that can happen anywhere, anytime. It's so true that it is part of the division. And so just having that open mindset is so key. It's like a great example of what anybody could do to be part of the change as well. You know, you don't have to go and start your own practice and be a part of the change in that way. It, it could just be as simple as trying to help other colleagues like open their perspective. So I would love to just kind of touch on, are there specific things that you do within your practice that do, you know, cultivate this, this environment where y'all truly are working together? I love one thing that you... Um, had shared in the article that I read was that universal respect is important. So not just the veterinarian, but the entire support team and making sure that kind of everyone's heard and feels like they're appreciated and that things such as wages are reflected in that. So if you don't mind maybe touching on that, um, on some things that you do to kind of cultivate that. That is so important. The perspective that we've talked about is is key. I have literally held every position in that hospital. I have been the receptionist. I've been an assistant. I've been an RVT. I've been the vet. I just think there's no real 
substitute <laughs> for having done all of those things. And um, I think it does give me a unique perspective for the other team members and, and what they have to go through. Um, until you've lived, I think every veterinarian should have to do two weeks on the reception desk um, <laughs> before you can get out of vet school because that stuff's real. I, I hired an associate at my last practice because that was one of the things that I was doing for the practice center. I was not compensated for that kind of stuff or anything. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, hired her and I said, wow, you're really, um, you know, new grad and, and very sweet, and very demure and just seemed really quiet. And we talked for a while and I realized she kind of has this inner strength. And I, I kind of commented on it. I said, well, you, you come across really shy at first in the beginning, but I, I get the sense that you're going to really communicate well with owners and be strong in your knowledge of medicine and not take any crap. And she said, yeah, I worked for a summer um, as a, a CSR at an emergency. So anyway, yeah, the things that we do are just, um, you know, really including everyone in in decisions, I, I start at them with, with with a vision and let them know what our mission statement was is and things like that. And I used to think all that stuff was really a bunch of corporate mumbo jumbo and silly. And and it turns out <laughs> when you do it, you know, I've heard some people say, do that for yourself, you know, figure out what your core values are and your mission statement and, your, and kind of remind yourself maybe even as a daily kind of thing. I think that keeps the train on the tracks too. So when we hire people, that's something that my practice manager talks about a lot. She says, here are the things that we live by. Do you think that that's something you can do? And we kind of have those little value checks before we even bring people on. And it happens, you know, you hire people sometimes and and they don't work. And the good thing is we know pretty quickly. And I think they do too. If, if it's not working and you can say, hey, I don't think this is a good fit for us. And, you know, we can release them to find something else. But the other team, the members of the team see that too. And it's not like a, a negative is like, oh crap, did they, did, if I screw up, they're going to fire me too. They usually see, and we'll talk about like when somebody's like, oh, we'll go, yeah, you know, they weren't really fitting in. And I'll see the team just like start nodding their heads like, yeah, no, I saw it too. So having the culture just be really grounded, telling people before you hire them, this is what's important to us, telling them every day this is important to us, showing those examples of we fired this client because of XYZ and just giving those constant examples firms up your culture. One thing I tell people all the time is say thank you more than you think you need to. Your CSR needs to hear that. And I worked with one vet one time who was a super, super great person, just the nicest person. And I remember him saying that one time, and this was like 18 years ago. He was like, I have to thank people. I mean, I pay them. And this was the nice one. Like this was the nice veterinarian that got along with everybody, but didn't kind of understand that, yeah, just a thank you here and there, sprinkle it in. Like it doesn't cost anything. It goes an awful long way. So those are kind of the things that we do. And we we don't talk bad about our clients. That's one of the really important things I've seen. Cause you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, you know, in the, in the clinic, it's super easy to just go, oh, idiot. Why did they do that? And they don't, we don't do that. And if, if anybody starts to, and even if I do, I say, call, call me out on it. I might be having a bad day, but that is part of our culture. We do not talk crap about our clients. If they need to go, they'll, they'll go. But yeah, just that negative talking in the clinic um, all day long really kind of sets a tone too. So it's, it's, I think it's a lot of little things that we do every day. No, I love what you shared though. And it is so hard to avoid, you know, when you're talking about the, um, Everybody does it without realizing, you know, making that comment about that client or whatever it may be. I did relief a couple of weeks ago and you hear those conversations and then before you know it, it ends up being about another coworker. You know, like it's just this 
the ripple effect that can be so subtle, but so destructive. And like you said, it, it really does kind of set the tone for the atmosphere. And so I love that you kind of set that expectation from the get-go. And it's not just for your employees, it's for you. And I also love that you have, it's like a filter for almost everything that you do when you, you know, talked about your, the mission statement and just beginning interviews with those values and, and just being honest with people and, and asking, do you think that it's a fit for you, you know? And like you said, it may be because they think it's silly or it's just something that like corporate practices do. But I've, I've seen from the personal aspect with just being self-employed, when you have that kind of statement to keep yourself grounded and remind yourself what's important and, you know, why you're here, it really does make things a lot easier when it comes to trying to figure out what you're going to say yes to or who you're going to say yes to, because you kind of have that as like a guiding light. If you don't have like a mission statement or some kind of clear cut value system that you practice by, and if you are an owner, you know, that your, your practice runs on, that's a place that you could start after listening to this. And I think it would naturally lead to a positive shift, like what you've created. Yeah. I, I will say I haven't been quite as active on my blog. I read all these things and I know I should repurpose stuff <laughs> and I put stuff out there and think, Oh, that would have been a good video. I could write a blog. You know, there's never enough hours in the day, but um, I did start with the blog because of my, you know, my journalism and writing background. That was easy. I kind of got on Instagram four years ago and was like, what do I even do with this? I'm old lady. Um, but it turns out it's for everybody. And I'm even doing, I'm doing TikTok now, which is super, super fun. I tend to, yes, real, real is a, a way to say it. I don't sugarcoat a lot of things for better or worse, <laughs> but I find out, you know, when you're real like that on whatever you are, be it online. And that is going to be your reputation. This is 2022. Your reputation is like it or not your quote unquote brand. And yeah, my thing is, let's get out. Let's talk about what really goes on in veterinary medicine, especially from the practice ownership side of it. Um, I do like to share a lot about things that I think are, um, let's just say there's a lot of BS out there. I don't think that serves anybody. Like I would have liked to see real practice owners and real things going on. Kudos to the people out there sharing like pet tips and stuff like that. I think that's super important. I thought about that in the beginning. I was like, oh, well, I have all this knowledge and I could do that. And that's just not me. That just kind of bores me. Like I'm a little nichier and I just really want to talk to, like I want vet students who are maybe not of the traditional age, you know, to understand what you can do. I want vet students who are of the traditional age, but who have been from marginalized parts of our communities understand like you can get out of school with your $300,000 in debt. You can still be a practice owner. And that is a great way to make money. You know, you can really create some generational wealth with that. And if you're a tech and you're in a really crappy job, you don't have to stay there. Like, let's talk about what a really good practice looks like and try to go for that. Because I think that's what upsets me the most is seeing vets, students, CSRs, assistants, everybody feel so hopeless. Just like, well, it's vet med and it just uh, sometimes it sucks and it's toxic and you don't make any money. And I call all of that into question. Why do we settle for that? We do not need to. And you know, you and I didn't know we had this experience. We thought, oh, we're going to get out. We're going to get in this place. And it was like, what? Smack in the face. It's not going to be perfect like that. So the more we can talk about it and say, okay, yeah, there are crappy places and experiences and there are good ones. 
And also you can make your own and then you could be a household vet. Like there's always ways to talk about it. And there's so much that's positive about what we do. And there's so much control we have that I don't think we realize, especially when you're getting into this or when you're, you've been in one place for a long time and you just can't see any, any different way out of it. So I'm sarcastic and sweary. And if I'm not for you, that's fine. Know what you're getting when you, when you, when you tune in and um, that's, yeah, that's just what I'm out there trying to do. I know that when we did, um, we did an episode a while back on practice ownership from like the financial aspect. And I kind of questioned in you know, some of the veterinary communities where people stood with that. And there was so much fear and hesitation around ownership for multiple reasons. Um, And so I think it's so important that we have people like you that are sharing their experiences and trying to shed light that it doesn't have to be the way that so many of us picture it to be. And speak to that point of so many are overwhelmed with the amount of debt that we come out of school with and the reality of, you know, pay not matching what we need. But there was a consistency across the board with most practice owners whenever I did this questioning that was tied to financial freedom. And I think that a lot of people kind of don't even take that into consideration because they're so fearful because they have debt you know, already. And so when you mentioned, you know, it is possible for you to come out of school with um, the amount of debt that a lot of us face and still become a practice owner. And it may in fact be the answer you're looking for at the same time. And so thank you for giving people hope in that area specifically, because it's, it's much needed. I'm happy to do it. I mean, it's not all sunshine and roses and rainbows every day for sure. And you, and you do need to be a certain type of personality to enjoy it and do it. But you know, I'm hopeful that some of this change we're talking about brings along some, maybe there's a different way to do it. You know, there's a profit sharing kind of place. Maybe you don't have to be the sole practice owner who's, you know, staying up late at night worrying about making payroll, but you're more invested in the business and, um, you know, you can get a little bit more out of it, maybe have a little bit more say in how it's run. I think there's there's just a lot of interesting ways that we can can construct this and it doesn't have to be, well, you go work for a corporate or you own your own practice and there's nothing in between. Um, I think there can be a lot of really engaging and profitable ways to be involved in it. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to find those going forward. I'm hoping we could possibly include in the notes a reference to the episode that I'm talking about, because he shed so much light on what you just touched on. The, there's so many different ways to become involved in ownership that isn't just like a sole practice owner. He really blew my mind with that conversation because there was just so many different avenues that I I was unaware of. Now I've been out of practice for over six years, but it was just, it was really encouraging. And so if we have listeners that are listening and, you know, this conversation has really got you thinking and you didn't listen to that previous recording, it may be one that's worth looking into because I think it could be a huge stepping point for some people. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso. Do you want to keep up with everything Vet Med? Then check out my show on Vet Candy TV. We talk about clinical updates, science news, plus some of the coolest people in our profession. Stream at My Vet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. 
I can't thank you enough for being on today. It's been such a pleasure. And I just want to remind everyone. So if you don't mind sharing, is all of your handles San Diego DVM? Is that how they would find you? Yeah, the San Diego DVM. That's how you find me. Okay, awesome. That way they could connect with you and continue to, you know, just take, take advantage of what you're what you're willing to share with everyone. I would love that. I love it when people message me. I get a, tons of messages about um, people saying, oh, I'm 35 and I'm a, I'm a tech, but I want to go to vet school or I, I want to go to tech school and I'm older or whatever. I, I, I'm always happy to add some uh, encouragement and, and talk to people through it uh, along the way. So thank you so much for having me on. It was definitely a fun, a fun conversation, um, different than any of the other ones we've been able to, to have. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. That's it for the show today. Um, thank you all for tuning in. I know that y'all have gotten some value from Dr. Angie taking her time and, and just hanging out with us. And I hope y'all do find her on her social handles so that y'all can continue to learn from her and just do life together. I think there's just such an importance of, like I mentioned earlier, just staying connected um, with people that or being a part of positive change within our profession. And so I really hope that y'all do go and find her. And until next time, this is Dr. Jessica with Living Well, and we'll see you soon. It's Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.